I'm Adam Robert Lewis, and you're listening to Brewing Actors Podcast. My chance to talk to actors, to hear their stories, what inspired their performances, and what decisions or relationships influence their work. On today's episode... That was a lot of choice. I made a lot. That was a lot. You know, I looked around, and my contemporaries, my mates, were buying massive houses in North London, and you know, because they'd signed, they'd been in in Chicago for two years, or been doing Greece for a, two, three years. I made a very specific choice that I wanted an artistically fulfilling career, and that meant sometimes not earning much money. I've, I've always enjoyed not knowing what's around the corner. I think maybe it's just the type of, maybe that is from my childhood thinking about it. I've never thought about it that way. I never knew where we were going to be living from one month to the next. Sometimes I'd set, we'd settle down and we'd be there two years, but a lot of the time it was three months here. I like, I, I, I'm used to change. And whilst, whilst everything changing all the time is quite um, scary, you certainly know you're alive. My guest today is Olivier Award-winning actress Jenna Russell. Jenna Russell has built an impressive career carving a diverse list of productions to her name. Jenna discovered her love of Sondheim while studying at Sylvia Young's Theatre School. It would be Sondheim's score that projected Jenna's career to new heights in Sunday in the Park with George. Jenna Russell is renowned for bringing a sense of truth and realism into every musical theatre role she portrays. It is said there is no better masterclass in acting through song than when Jenna is performing. Jenna discusses her life and career and talks frankly about her journey and her fight for an artistically fulfilling career. Jenna is currently rehearsing for the 50th anniversary concert of Godspell, which will be made available to stream worldwide for three days on the 27th, 28th and 29th of August. The concert will raise money for wonderful charities Hope Mill Theatre, Acting for Others and National AIDS Trust. For more information, visit hopemilltheatre.co.uk. So, like any story, we have to start at the very beginning. My, my dad, my stepfather, had um, a great love of West Side Story, right. Judy Garland, Liza Minnelli, um, Lena Horne, all the, all the greats. So we used to listen to stuff like that in the car or, or at home. My mum really loved um, jazz singers, Billie Holiday, um, Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, who else did she play a lot of? Um, Sarah Vaughan. Um, right. So I grew up grew up with that kind of going on, plus all the you know the popular music of the time. But my dad was a cab driver. My stepdad was a cab driver, and kind of did sold junk. So he you know he was a grafter. He used to empty. Um, I remember used to, I used to go around with him in the van. He used to empty. Um, parking meters for the council. You know, he had little jobs that he did. He liked to call himself an antique dealer. And every now and then he used to deal some nice antiques. 
um, it was mostly, but you know, it, people wanted it scrap, scrap stuff. Mm. But we used to sell it down Petticoat Lane and those markets. My mum was um, is a PA secretary. She worked a lot for legal firms as a typist and kind of worked her way up. She used to have a couple of stalls in Walthamstow Market where she sold um, what would now be named kind of vintage clothes. But I guess is her and dad, you know, bought antiques or tried to get antiques and junk. She used to she used to look out for antique clothes, fur coats, fifty dresses, stuff like that. So she used to sell stuff like that. Um, when my when my mum my and, and stepdad had quite a, a tempestuous relationship. Right. And eventually there was lots of to and fro in and eventually they kind of split up for good when I was about 13. And I, um, my mum was living in temporary accommodation, waiting for a council flat. So I had to live with my dad, my stepdad, which was fine. I lived with him. Um, and then my mum uh, got a flat, um, an emergency house. house. She was an emergency house because she was living in B&Bs and stuff. Right. When she got that flat, which was a one-bedroom flat, I moved in with her. So we used to – it was a tiny little flat. She'd have the front room. I'd have the bedroom, which literally you could just about get a bed in with our clothes. And we'd kind of – I remember us swapping round. She'd have the bedroom. I'd have the front room. Then that's how we lived. I kind of lived there really till I was 18, 19, something like that. So when I went to move with my mum, I had to go to another school. Um, and I'd been to lots of, lots and lots of schools because of my parents moving around, my parents splitting up throughout the years. And I ended up living with my mum in Crouch End in this, you know, we were very lucky, nice area. It wasn't then, but it's turned in, it turned into an yeah. area. And uh, I just said, I want to live with you, but I can't cope with going to another 2000. That's toughening on the first, you know, you've got, it's like experiencing first day of school multiple times and once is enough, but to do it multiple times. All the time, all the time. But, you know, the good thing about it is I think it gives you um, a resilience and and you're quite good at getting in there straight away with people. Mm. You have to, you know, I can go in, the idea of it makes me feel a bit wobbly, but I can go into a, a room and just get on with it rather than going, Did that benefit you going in for auditions, do you think, walking into a room or? Possibly, possibly, but you never know what they want for auditions, do you? Sometimes you go no. and you're all jolly and they think you're over the top. Sometimes you go in and you think, oh, should I just be monosyllabic? And then they think not... You can't bloody win with audience. No. I was talking to Michael Strassen, who's directing the Godspell um, concert online. And he was saying, at drama schools now, you're taught this audition technique. And he said, I see it from a mile off. You see young actors come into a room and they're all smiley. Hello, hello. And they're doing, the, they're doing you know, what they've been taught, shake hands, you know, make contact and everything. And... He said, what I want to see is I just want to see you. I don't want to see audition technique walking in a room. And it's one thing even I struggle with. You know, sometimes people can say I'm a bit cold. I come in a bit cold and then I think, oh, I'll try and be jolly. But I mean, it, it, it's literally like, you know, having a really 
bad best friend that keeps telling you, oh, don't do it like that, yeah. don't do it like this, do it like this, do it like that. It's a mind field, isn't it? it you, and, mm. and we're, you know, the people that we are, we're a hundred people in one person. Do you know what I mean? Our personalities aren't just one thing. And, and also it depends on the temperature of the room. I think I noticed a change when I was probably about 18 that suddenly when I'd go in for TV jobs, it was like they were holding the biggest secrets in the world. Nobody wanted to talk. The, the, the producers and directors kind of lost the art of making conversation. And they didn't tell you about the project. They kind of just expected you to come in and be the character, whatever the character was, uh, that they wouldn't tell you. You just went right. in and they kind of felt you out. And, of course, for me, I'm one of those people when there's – well, I was. I'm, I'm better at it now. But when there was silence in a room, i go – <laughs> and try and tell jokes and just thinking what's going on I couldn't understand it was all this serious silence and just looking at your photograph and looking at you but it's it's auditions I don't know mm. I really mm. I, I find them strange I feel very lucky that I'm older and um, A I don't have to go through that as much as I did and, and B, I kind of don't, excuse my language, give a fuck anymore. You know, this is who I am. I think I say to students a lot when I speak to them, you know, the only person, the only unique thing that you have is yourself. The sooner you can try and just be yourself, whatever that is, or just be authentically you, that will help you. But it takes a long time to, to feel comfortable about yeah, being you. I yeah, I think as a young, you know, as a young actor, you do. I do feel conditioned a little bit to look a certain way, be a certain way. You know, you're this, you're that. You're a leading man, or you're not. Are you the? And I just think, oh, it just gets really. Sometimes it drives you so uh, so much away from the actual work of you know learning your line, showing up, and and doing what you do. It just becomes a whole. It does feel as if you're part of some big corporate setup that needs you need to do X, Y, Z now to try and get it. A job and I mean that seems to be something that they didn't and actually doing the podcast talk to various different actors through the industry and talking to actors who've gone through the repertory system said that it was the best thing because you just joined you didn't know what plays you were going to be doing. You played various different roles, so there was no chance of being typecast or pigeonholed because you just that you couldn't because what you could be the lead in one show, then you'd be rehearsing, you know, a, a restoration fop for the next show. Uh, it was a great training ground, and it was a far more fruitful process. Where today, I think there's far more pressure on being a version that people want you to be rather I think, than being. I think people <clears throat> don't sometimes see that I do but I think a lot of younger actors don't see that as being successful I think they think being successful some people think being successful is landing a year's contract in something or getting the lead in a tv series you know yes getting a lead in a tv series is nice because actually it doesn't take up too much of your time but landing you know I, I always say be wary of throwing yourself into a long contract you know you might have some money in your pocket, but you're actually probably, you keep, that's digging a little pit for you to fall down into. Yeah. Sadly. And, you know, mm. what, what normal people think of as success, which is 
oh, you, you're in EastEnders, that you're successful, it doesn't really mean it, you're being successful. It means you've kind of, <laughs> you've made a choice that, that perhaps um, isn't a great choice. You know what I mean? Is I, I always look at, for me, the actors that I look at that are successful are ones that keep working but do as any, everything and every, anything. Mm. I, mean, I love, I, I think it's important to do fringe. I think it's important to do two months of Coventry rep. I think it's great to do a day on a movie. I think it's, you know, to, Gather, gather, little, do little jobs, the merrier. But- I think uh, as an actor looking at, at your career and, and CV, I guess, and there is an envy that when you do look at, I suppose you've done exactly that. You have gone, you know, you have done Limes at the Palace and then gone to something at the Tricycle or gone uh, Regent's Park Open Air, then maybe done a, uh, uh, to the RSC to do Shakespeare. And I, the variety of work is is astonishing. And I, and, I, and um, that was a lot. I mean, choice. The, I made a lot. That was that was a lot. You know, I looked around, and my contemporaries, my mates, were buying massive houses in North London and doing all because they'd signed. They'd been in in Chicago for two years, or been doing Greece for a, two, three years. I made a very specific choice that I wanted an artistically fulfilling career, and that meant sometimes not earning much money. Mm. But, Is that uh, something you think you got from your mother? I don't, do you know what? I don't know. I really, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just always, I've always felt that the, the life, I've, I've always enjoyed not knowing what's around the corner. I think maybe it's just the type of, maybe that is from my childhood thinking about it. I've never thought about it that way. I never knew where we were going to be living. Right. From one mm. month to the next. Sometimes mm. I'd set, we'd settle down and we'd be there two years, but a lot of the time it was three months here. I like I I I'm used to change, and whilst whilst everything changing all the time is quite um, scary, you certainly know you're alive. <laughs> and, yeah, it's and thrilling. You certainly mm. make make room for opportunity. I remember agents saying to me years ago, you know, you, we can't get you any work until you're out of work. And I think that's, it's a hard one to get your head around because you want to be working all the time. But also if you are working all the time, cast directors go, oh, she's, she's, she's always working or he's been lame for two years. Mm. It's funny. Well, it's funny you mentioned the long contracts because it is something. And as soon as you said, it, I thought that's me because when I left drama, I went. To, didn't go to drama school until I was twenty-four, so I was really late. I really put it off and put it off and put it off. But I just had this burning desire to just be in Phantom of the Opera, and I wanted to play the Phantom, albeit you know get the cover to afford me to play it. So I decided I would stay for as long as it took for me to get that cover and for them to I guess take take note a little bit and it did take me three three years to to do it so I was there for three years obviously I've now left but so the decision was taken out of my hands um just before before yeah so just before lockdown yeah we we 
we thought it, we would go back uh, for six months, but it turns out that they want to do some changes to the building and, and now is the perfect opportunity. So they've, you know, obviously we won't be going back. And people are like, oh, this is perfect for you now because the decision has been taken out of your hands. And I mean, I, you are right. You know, my agent always said, well, it's great if you want to renew and fulfill something personal to you, but I can't really do my job. Because, you know, nobody will come and see Phantom with all best will intentions in the world. They've seen it. It's been there for 33 years. I could be cooking up a storm as the Phantom, but nobody's going to drag themselves to watch it. So it, it's, it's two evils, really. But, um, but no, you do get seduced, I think, by contracts. And I think once you start off on the uh, sort of a level where you're doing a year's contract, the money is kind of seducing because you think, oh, you know, it's hard to throw yourself back out into the lion's den a little it's bit. It's terrifying. It's terrifying, you know, and we live, we we, we live according to how, what money we've got coming in. You know, you, I know people who have been in very lucrative acting roles that perhaps they really do want to leave, but they're so used to how much money they're getting or or suddenly they you know at some point they said to their parents don't worry I'll help you and they've got people they need to take care of it's kind of the worst situation but I do say people really try 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 to be brave try and make those brave choices before you have got a mortgage actually you can do it when you've got a mortgage mortgages are cheaper than rent a lot of the time if you can get hold of one but before you have children before you have parents that need you need you to be looking after them and you have to make different choices just try and, and just be brave because the, the first jobs you do out of drama school or out of school or whatever they kind of set the tempo for your career it's you're you're laying down a template and that's you're telling casting people and directors what kind of an actor you are so if if you can kind of go, if you can flummox them, that's what I always do. I try and flummox people. Right. I, I really have made an, I used to, but I had a bit of an epiphany about 12 years ago, but I used to, if I did a, a show that involves singing, I wouldn't do one for seven years. That's how dogmatic I was about it. Because so many people want to throw you into those pigeonholes. And they really do. They're desperate to do it. So the more you can make that difficult for them, the better. But it's hard. It's hard. And, you know, there, I've had times when I... Mm. Do you think it's harder now to do that than it was when you were starting out? I've no, I've, I've no idea. I've no idea how hard it, you know... It's tricky. I mean, I, I, I again, I just say try not to let one producer be the main person that's paying you is mm, mm. you know we all know those lovely producers <laughs> see something and go oh i like that i can use that and then they put you in another one of their shows and you're going oh this is great this i've got you know and it can last i know people who it lasted for 10 years they'd be walking around from one of the, these producers shows to the next <laughs> but then that producer goes Oh, I don't know what to do no. with you anymore. Or there's a new person on the block. You're new. dropped, and no other, nobody else knows who you are. They might see on your CV that you've played X, Y, and Z, but they don't know who you are. No, you know that's, what I mean? that's true. Yeah, 
You've yeah. got to spread your roots wide <laughs> and yeah. just try and, and get a little bit of rain every now and then on, on each root to hopefully keep growing your little tree. And also, I think a great thing that somebody said to me, which was my, my Ray, who's my other half, we've been together 20 years now, and his brother-in-law said to me one day, I, I, I was, hasn't, hadn't been working for a bit, I'd had a bit of a bad time, and he said, you know, what's going on? I said, I was this, but he went, you can't be the lead all the time. And I thought, oh, God, that's mm. so true. Sometimes, yeah. you know, it's good to remind yourself there isn't a ladder. They, I think they might have been at some point a ladder, but there isn't really. You can go from the bottom rung of a ladder to the top. You can also go from the top rung of the ladder to the, the underneath, <laughs> you know. It, there, there really isn't a ladder. So if you're playing the lead in Evan Hansen and then you get offered um, a fringe job where you're the second, you're the supporting lead, but it's a good part, you should do it. Don't think, now, now I'm a leading actor. That's all I do yeah. is leading actor but, work. But people do fall into that trap, I think, of I've played a lead now, so I no longer understudy. And I throw that question to a lot of people sometimes. You know, if it's a... If it's a good part in a show, but and it involves understudying something, would you do it? And, and nine times out of ten, people go, "Oh, I'm not sure. I don't think so. I don't think so." So it is. It's tough to make those decisions, but I think go away. It's like the song "I'm Still Here." You know, I think that's a perfect example of what a career is like. Yep. And I mean, you know, one week you can be here, and I mean, yeah, so it is good. So. To go back to Sylvia Young, you trained at such a young age. Was it your, was it your mother that suggested you should go and train, or did no, no, was no. It somebody I, else? I had absolutely um, no interest in going into acting whatsoever. It was nothing that I, you know, no. And my when I was said to my mum when I was like 13 and a half, 14, I, I was feeling very apprehensive about going to another big um, secondary school, local secondary school. My friend, my, my friend who was, um, my dad was a cabbie and his mate was a, a good friend of his was a cabbie and his son went to Sylvie's. He said to me, he said, you could audition for Sylvie's that's a small school. He said, and half of the people there are there because they're genuinely talented. The other half are there because they have issues. I went for the audition there, and I got in. I, I learned a piece of uh, Shakespeare because my mum was um, back at um, like adult college because she didn't have much in the way of um, uh, qualifications. So she was doing English language or literature. I don't know, but one of the things she was doing was um, Romeo and Juliet. So I looked through that script, found the biggest bit of Juliet that I could find and learned that. And I had always enjoyed singing along in the car to West Side Story. So I thought I'd do Something's Coming. As a right. I'd never sung them with a piano. I'd never right. done the monologue. I've only done it in, in my bedroom to myself. Then I went in, I purple hair in the front of my hair because my mum was into the punk mood. I had purple hair and I went in at 14 and I 
try to sing something's coming but if you know it it goes the pianist and i was like the word to come in and it was far too high i squeaked my way through that and um sylvie kind of smiled at me and then i remember thinking well you've got to really give it some welly if it's monologue and i don't know why, but I remember, I so remember it when we're walking up to the corner of this room. Don't know why I decided to do it from the corner and looking at the walls and taking a deep breath and going, if you don't do this well, Jenna, it's big school for you and you've got to give it some something. I span around and I did the monologue and um, God bless her, she saw something something in me who knows what but i i joined the school and um i don't know i think my my dad said he was going to play the fees and i think he did the first i was talking to sylvie about this the other week he paid the first term and i don't think he ever well i'll get emotional about it i don't think he paid after that and i said to sylvie the other day i said you paid my fees didn't you you and she went Honestly, Don, she said, I can't remember. She said, what I do know is that you needed to be at the school. Mm. And mm. I did. It saved my life. I was, I was going through some tricky stuff emotionally, and it, it saved my life. I met people who have, are now lifelong friends. It was, a, it was crazy time at Sylvie's then it's not like it is now it was we were in a you know a boys hall just a hall in Covent Garden and we used to get to the school in the morning and all the in the boxes at the side were, were was the school and we used to pull the boxes out get everything out right. and 30 of us we'd sit and do some maths then we'd be jumping around then we'd be doing impro classes and it was there that I kind of found I had a bit, bit of a voice. Um, we used to do group singing lessons, which I loved. And, you know, we used to do lots of acting and impro. And I started out probably about 15 doing telly. And I did quite a lot of, lot of telly. Did they bridge the gap for you to get into the industry? Did a lot of opportunities come up through the, well, through the drama school? She has an agency. She had, you know, she still does that. So you were part of, of uh, you know, the biggest young pe- person's agency and, and they're really good. You can only work a certain amount of time a year um, and they sort all that out. You get chaperoned everywhere. So when, you know, I, I started working then, but a lot of, a lot of people at, at the school when I was there had no intention of being actors. I didn't. It was just a right. great school you know it was mm. great fun and and you just kind of learned different skills I'm sure all the, the kids that didn't go into acting learned stuff and took that on yeah. their lives whatever they did you learn a lot about yourself at drama school didn't you, you learn how your, how your body moves you actually you learn how you interact with other people I only did one year um where, where and I think that was lot Mountfield oh okay yeah, it was just la- it was a last it was a last minute thing. I couldn't get an agent and I couldn't get seen and I was having acting and singing lessons myself and somebody suggested, look, you need some form of validation. And I mean, it is that thing you've, you know, wh- when I had Mount View on my CV, 
agents and casting directors, I guess, went, ah, okay, tick, tick in the box. And I, I think I grew as a performer, but um, it was a last minute scramble. I, 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 there was one or two places left, Royal Welsh College and Mountview. And I thought if I went to the Royal Welsh, it would be too close to home. And I just don't know if it would put, put me out of my comfort zone. And I managed to get in and, um, <laughs> through the worst dance audition I've ever done in my oh. life. And I can't dance. Oh, so, I mean, I was bumping into people. Oh, I was just horrendous. But anyway, I, I'm glad I did. And, and it was good. I learned a lot and I met a lot of great, you know, outside directors. And it was, um, it was a really great year and it was a good grounding for me. Um, a lot of what drama schools do, because I obviously did, I didn't really go to drama school. I went to Sylvie's and um, I was there for two years, but it was school you know 14 to 16 um but we were doing singing and stuff but i guess what drama schools do is it gives you you get the opportunity to to do a showcase with an invited audience of casting directors i mean my my feeling is a lot of people don't actually get any better going to drama school. And I think sometimes, although I think they're getting better at it, sometimes it strips away what makes you uniquely unique. Mm. That's the mm. hard bit. But I can see why people would want to do it. I think the only way you really learn about the business is, is being in the business and studying the people you respect and, and what, how they go about it. Just you learn on the job, I think, a lot of the time. Who um who introduced you to Son Time? Did is that something you came across at Sylvia's? Yeah, it was. I um I had a friend called Russell Nash. Um and he I very specifically remember him bring, bringing round to um me and my mum's flat um the tapes of Sweeney Todd. All right. Um and we sat. What the original, the original Broadway, yeah, Len Carew and and, um, mm. and Angela Lansbury, and I remember us sitting there on the floor with the with the booklet, listening to the album and, and reading the the synopsis at the same time. And I, my mind was like, "What? What is this? It's crazy!" And then um, a friend of mine, I don't know, have you ever come across? wonderful person called Matt Ryan. Matt was a, was it Sylvie's, his mum actually who passed away, who was like my second mum. She was my agent, Ronnie, and she was an actress and then went into being an agent. And Matt was a very successful kind of teenager, child actor, teenage actor, early 20s actor, and then went into um, directing um, Les Mis. He was in the right. Les Mis. He got an assistant, you know, like uh, assistant director, and ended up directing it all over the place. And he he he, he directs mostly now and, and works in drama schools. But Matt, big Judy Island, Liza Minnelli, Lena Horne, oh, all of all of the greats, and Son Diamond. He kind of introduced me to it, and we had a Son Diamond group when I was all fourteen. Right. And uh, we used to, it's Sylvie's, she used to do shows and, and there'd be the rock and roll group and there'd be the, the Andrew sisters kind of, the war thing. And we used to go around old people's homes singing, you know, old old war songs in, right. in the little Andrew sisters' <laughs> outfits 
and hospitals and things like that. And we put together, because we thought it was very important to put together a Sondang group. So we were singing Pacific Overtures and... Uh, Yes, we at a young age. Because it's funny with Sondheim, I think on first listening, or maybe to, it's probably different because I, I really love Sondheim, but for somebody who's introduced to Sondheim for the first time, I, I'm very fascinated looking at their expression because it's not, it's not your normal music. You know, it's not, it's not Andrew Lloyd. It's very obscure and some of it takes a while to land, I think. You need to really you sit don't. with it for you, a long time. You do, you do. But um, interestingly, it's the most success accessible when you're watching it. I mean, this is what theatre's all about. It's like Shakespeare, I think. I, somebody's c- compared Sondheim well, to Shakespeare. I, think it's, I, know, I know what you mean, but I think it's much more accessible. I think when you, when you sit and listen to Sondheim, it, it, it demands you to listen in a different way. It doesn't wash over you, although some of it does, because he's very clever and he, you know, like Prince, Prince would do these brilliant albums and then he'd do an album like Sign of the Times where he kind of perfected every genre of music in each track. Sondheim can do that. He does that in Follies. You have a different type of genre on, on, on each song because they, they did the little French ditties or they did the big romantic ballads. He, he, can, he can do all that. I think with, with Sondheim, when you watch it, because you have to listen in a different way, it opens, opens you up to a much deeper and richer experience as an audience member. And that's, again, why actors um, always want to do Sondheim, because it, you, nev- it, you can never get to the bottom of it. Can't, you can't. It's never you can't complete it because it's too there's too many layers, which is brilliant to play. But you know, like Guys and Dolls, brilliant show, it's wonderful. But once you've once you've done it for three weeks, there's nothing more to find. As an actor, you go, oh, oh I've discovered the character, and adding any more to it or playing playing with different nuances, there are no, <laughs> there are none. It is this beautiful, perfect wedding cake but you can't take away one of the tiers and put a different shaped tier in to see what that looks like because the whole thing would fall down. It can't mm. do that with that show. It's classic and it's perfect. But Sondheim, you never quite get to the bottom of it. It moves around or you'll be, do- you'll be on stage singing something and you'll hear something in the orchestration that belongs to another moment. You go, oh, that's so brilliant. I'd never realised that that's going on. It- in that moment with that orchestration so it's I guess it, it it's a bit more highbrow but I think because it's so emotionally true anyone can get it but I think it, it's better when you see it it's you know listening to company you kind of go I don't know what's going on when you watch company you go oh I see I see I see what it is it's 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 you know, the picture is the music and the lyrics are part of the picture, but the picture is everything. Like Sunday the Park with George, you you might listen to that end of end. Of- yeah, that, I think that is one. Yeah, when I I've listened to it, and and it is one of those things you think I have no idea what's quite going on here, but I guess when you see it, oh. it, it does paint a, a, a picture that you, you you 
totally can't get from just listening to the recording. No, and and um, you know, it's a, it's a rare thing of beauty, and it's it's dare I say it, so good it's life changing. It's that good, you know, and and they exist. Sunday the Park with George, I think Fun Home is another one. You listen to Fun Home, which is Janine Tesori and, and Lisa Cron, and you go, oh, that's kind of a tricky listen, but it worked. Caroline or Change, really difficult show to listen to the album of because it's very angular. But when you see it on stage, honestly, it feels like someone's... There's a, there's a moment in that show where it feels like someone's grabbed hold of you by the throat, mm. strangling you because your emotion, the emotion that's happening within your body as a, as mm. a viewer, I mean, it's glorious. And I, I prefer that kind of stuff. I love, but I'm that yeah. way with plays. I'm that way with films. I, I like, you know, I'm sure Frozen is a great movie, <laughs> but it doesn't really do it for me. I'm, 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 I'm more, I would, I would choose Godfather over Frozen or something like that. I don't know. Although I'm not a huge Frozen, but I did watch, my fiance said, let's sit down and watch Frozen 2. And I was like, oh, really? Um, but I did, I, I must admit, I really, I did enjoy it. But I, I you know, I, I watch all, I'm, I'm very similar, sort of darker, um, I'm, I tend to choose an actor at the minute is Brando and I'm watching wow. all Brando's films. Did you see his um, documentary the other night? Me, uh, well, I've seen it before, but it's yeah, a fantastic, amazing. it's a fantastic. I've just read a book, which is, um, it's a recent book written about him. And I mean, I know he's hailed as, you know, the, one of the greatest actors in the world and, and, and he really is, but he's, I, I wouldn't want to live in his head. He was such a complex character. But I mean, again, that's probably... I think as an actor, and certainly um, when you're growing up and, and the childhood you have, I think you can draw from it. I mean, if you've never experienced any issues at all, I don't know what you draw on as an actor, really. Yeah. Well, it's a tricky thing, isn't it? I say that about my daughter. I think, you know, whatever work you do, you know, it's 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 the struggles that you've had to um, had to encounter that make you who you are, and of course, there's always choice in how you respond to to the things that happen in your life. I think a lot of us think that we don't have a choice if we have a shit time. We don't have, a, a, especially as children, a way of, of dealing with it that isn't just the obvious route. You know, you can have an awful childhood. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to then transpose that to your family or you're going to have an awful life. You can have an awful childhood and harness all the, all everything you learn from that and become an exceptional human being, an exceptional grown-up because of, because of the hurt and the terrible things that you've encountered as a young person. But that's choice. And I think we forget we have in these situations. But I think I remember thinking when I was watching that Brando thing, which I thought was so illuminating and yeah, difficult. What a difficult life and the tragedy of these children, awful. But I thought he when he said when he said the easy the easy thing to do in acting is the shouting and the crying and throwing things about. 
the hard bit is doing nothing. And I thought, you are bang on. Because people think it's all about making noise. Oh, yeah. And mm. being demonstrative mm. and shouting at people that the greatest actors, that's easy peasy. And it is because you feel like you're doing stuff. It's knowing when and how to be still, how to just deliver something truthful without showing off. Oh, no, I mean, he did, he, he did that in abundance, but he, but he, I suppose it's, you know, you see with actors, um, some great stage actors who have harnessed that sort of American cinema acting, I suppose a bit like Anthony Hopkins, I think is a great example of somebody who's, who's done the whole, done the Shakespeare, the stage and these big grandiose parts, but then is able to fizz those elements into a very simple and economized performance on screen, which is just mesmerizing to watch. Yeah, like him, Remains um, of the Day, that, that oh, performance I mean, is, yeah. but he does nothing. He yeah, nothing. It. He, you, you can see it, but he's not, he's not demonstrating ever he's and because we have those beautiful shots of him like in that window looking out of the window and, and all you can see everything moving through him it's oh. mm. then again that's the thing with film you you can be brilliant but if you're if your photographer if your cameraman isn't capturing it or your director isn't going with you on something or or pushing you out of your comfort zone. And the, and if the editor thinks, oh, I didn't like that shot because I can see a shadow in the corner, it's gone. You know, you have no, that's why I love theatre because you have, you have as much control as the lighter, lighting designer, as much control as the director um, in shaping your performance. And you can take the audience on that journey with you for two and a half, three hours or one and a half hours. You can, you can mold it and then give, give, I love it. You can give it to them. And that's why I think theatre will always be, be there. I mean, crikey, hard times, but, but we, we will get back. Um, the finances of theatre are going to be completely buggered up for a long time. But, People will want to see shows and want to see life experience reflected on stage. They, it's been something we've done since the beginning of time that will continue. Mm. Mm. You said um, that you consciously, if you do a musical, then you say, right, I'm going to go away and for a few years not do you know, a musical, do television. And you did television for a long period of time and it it was Guys and Dolls which brought you back to theatre. Would you say, because after Guys and Dolls, there seems to be a huge shift in your career then. Was that like the, everybody hopes for that moment as an, as a, as an actor that it just goes and something yeah. changes? I kind of guess it, it ended up being that. You know, you never know, do you? I mean, so it's, it's, so, it's alchemy. You never know what's going to hit and what isn't. But I guess that job, I certainly felt it opened doors for me. I, but again, it's timing. It's, you know, I only got that job because I'd done high society in Sheffield with Fiona Laird 
directing me in that. And I only got to do that because I'd worked with Fiona Laird um, on two workshop productions that we were playing around with at the at the um, National uh, Studios. You can you can rewind all the reasons mm. why, and you know. So I I did that with Fiona. She remembered me for High Society. We did High Society. Michael Grandage was running Sheffield, and he liked what I did. Then chose me, luckily, to do Sarah Brown, which is the part I didn't want to play. I wanted to be Adelaide, and he let me <laughs> he let me audition for Adelaide, and he went, "Thank you. Now can you sing the Sarah Brown song?" Oh, she's boring. No, her story, she changes. She's the only one. Who's in it? You and McGregor. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. But I, you know, and I had a good, I had a great time doing that. And from that, they gave me Sunday in the Park with George, which was a lifetime's ambition you know, a dream of mine to play that role. And that, I think, was the moment, you know, we get we get opportunities where we play parts that just fit us well. You know, that, that role just fit me well. And d- working with Dan Evans was one of the best experiences of my life. And Sondheim loved it, and we took it to New York. But when I, fi- when I finished Sunday in the Park, I was asked to do, I got offered two jobs. I got offered Caroline or Change at the National, and I got offered um, Amy's View with Peter Hall directing, which is a David Hare play, and it was a tour coming into to the West End. And it's funny, I, I thought I've done two musicals on the trot, which I hadn't done ever. Right. I thought, I can't do another musical. That would be suicide for any straight work. So I turned down Caroline or Change and I did Amy's View and I had <laughs> the most miserable time. And it's nothing to do with, with Peter Hall. He was lovely. He was heaven. Nothing to do with the act. The guy who played my husband was a prick, but it had nothing. <laughs> it really was. They, the rest of the cast were gorgeous. I just, I just remember thinking, I'm really, and the play was great. I just, I f- it just, I don't know, something about that play just made me go, I, I just couldn't wait for it to be over. And I said to myself, I will never do, you know, that ended up being like a seven month contract. It was quite a long one for me. And I thought, I will never do something unless I, for the, I'll have to do it for the right reasons. I did that play because I was being, trying to figure out I've got to do a play and I would have had a much happier time doing Caroline or Change. And from that moment, I decided just to do whatever felt right and right. made me happy. And therefore, mm-hmm. since then, there have been a lot more musicals because I love singing. I love what it, I love what it does to an audience that you can be telling them a story in dialogue and then music starts and you take them on a, on a different journey that can't be held with words. It has to be done, you know, and I, I think when musicals are done correctly with the right people directing, producing the right story, the right actors, it can be 
better than anything in the world. There's a big stereotype with musical theatre, acting in a musical, that somehow it's watered down or, you know, it's not as good as as seeing a play. But it just seems to be, throughout your entire career, I don't think there's one review where it hasn't said an acting masterclass. And I mean, how 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 do you achieve that level of... Because there's presenting a song, there's somebody, you know, da 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 How do you harness and approach... Um, you know, a song that has been sung by many, many people. What do you do when you approach a song like that? Oh, I don't know. I I mean, the basic thing, I think, and again, I learned this when I when I auditioned for Guys and Dolls. I went to Mark Mayland. Do you know Mark? Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's the first time I'd been to see Mark. And I said I hadn't done a show for, for a long, long time. <clears throat> so I thought I must go have a lesson to sing it through. And I find singing really embarrassing like I really do because I feel like it's bearing my soul I find I honestly find it really difficult I can't do it if anyone's in the house it, it God, I, I often get hysterical because laughter because I, I don't know what to do <laughs> with everything that's going on in me I find I find it really that I'm having a hot flush talking about it so I went to him and I went okay I'm going to sing If I Were a Bell and I kind of sang it and he went what are you doing what are you doing? I was, what? And he went, you can't bend the song around like that until you know it. And he really wrapped me on the knuckles. And But I think he's right. So what I, <laughs> it, it's been very useful ever since. That what I do is I, l- I learn a song as perfectly as I can. And then, right. I, throw, then I throw it all away. Um, then, then I kind of throw it away, and I just try and go for the story. You know, always it's like doing monologues. They're not about. They're never about you. If I were a bell, she's going. If I was this, if I were a bell, I'd be ringing. If I were a song, I'd be singing. Whatever it is. I can't remember the words, but it's not about her. She's not. You know, I think one has to remember it's all about him. She's she's giddy, drunk, and she's going. She's she's. Everything she's doing, she's doing for him. And the part with George, everything is about George, and or it's or it's about um, George in Act Two. It's about her lover, or it's about her grandson in trouble. It's never. She's never going. This is my moment. Children and art is a plea to him to see see the good, and and to remember, you know, to unlock him. It's not about her going. Let me look at this beautiful painting. Sunday in the Park with George, the opening number, isn't about her showing off. It's about her going, this man drives me mental and making a contract with the audience, telling them about what he's like. And then it's that beautiful bit in the middle where she sort of makes love to him through, through song, telling him how glorious he is. So I think there's something in that about... It's not, it's not about, it's never about you. It's, you know, or, or, or making a perfect sound, I always think. I much prefer hearing a vulnerability in a voice, hearing a crack in a voice. That's what appeals to me. If I can hear someone wrestling with, with emotion and if that means I don't get the note for a value of four and I get it for two instead with a bit of a, at the end of it, I'd much rather... <laughs> I'd much rather hear that. I don't know. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things I've tried to, or certainly at the beginning when I was in, doing phantom rehearsals, they were like, yeah, you, you can sing it well, but, you know, we need to see the vulnerability. The payoff is in the moments where it's big and it's, it's brassy. You know, if you crack on a note, you crack. If you cut out, you cut out. And, I, and that's where the audience will connect with the, the purse, the man, than this whole facade that he's created for himself. And I thought, oh, yeah. Because I think I was so worried about being technically brilliant, you know. Oh, I need to show the MD that I can, you know, do a soft this and so. I think, you know, once, once if you're in a situation where you are an understudy or, or you know, the minute you get a job, it's not. It's not about your voice anymore. You, they know you can sing it. I, you know, I often will throw throw stuff away because I don't want the audience to be aware that I'm singing. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. I try mm. really make conscious decisions to make it as conversational as possible, but also aware of. I want them at moments to be pinned back in their seat by by a big note but it's not about it's never about the about making a perfect sound that's that's why i find concerts so difficult and recordings difficult because it's all about perfection and and you know going to see a sundime con- concert when someone's in a ball gown they want it sung beautifully because it's about the, it's about the sound um, and I find that really difficult because for me it's always about the character <laughs> and as a result it sounds all over the place. But I know that in the in the moulding of an entire evening I'll 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 work it out, but it, you you've got to I don't know, I, I did um Bridges with Madison County recently, which is a big Mm-hmm. Big sing for me, something I've never done before, and I was, oh, I really worked hard on trying to sound beautiful. <laughs> and sometimes I think I probably did, but ultimately, I, I really worked hard months and months and months before I did it to try and get the right sound because it was kind of verging on operatic, um, which I can only ever do when I'm being silly in camp. Right. She's a quiet, gentle, <laughs> beautiful woman who's telling this really small but very emotional story. So I can't take the piss out. But once, once I'd learnt it all and managed to screech it out in a way that wasn't too painful on the ears, I then concentrated on on the story. You know, and sometimes I had about I think I had three six minute long songs. Terrified me, but. It was, it was, um, it was, it was great. It was a great lesson in, again, less is more. Less is more. Mm. Mm. Did you go after that show? Because I, you know, I mean, famous movie. Do you, if there's a show that's on the horizon and you think, my God, I would love to be attached to that project. Do you, do you go after it or do you just go, well, if it's coming my way, I'll, whatever will be, will be. It depends. And Fun Home, I went after. I mean, yeah. I, I, Did you leave EastEnders to do Fun yeah. Home? 
Because that to me seems, I don't know what, you know, not to judge, but I, uh, when I was doing some research, I thought, well, that is, that sounds like a crazy, crazy, crazy U-turn. But I mean, I suppose, did you feel like with these tenders, you'd, you'd had enough? That was it? I, I did it, I did it kind of, I don't know. I, I, financially, I did it for finances. I did it because it was unfinished business because I was, offered it when I was 16 and yes, and then pulled out. Um, there was un, there, it was an unfinished business thing, but I never intended, you know, they, the producer at the time when he asked me to do it, he said, I would offer you a two year contract, but I know you'll say no. So let's do a year. And, and I was like, okay. Cause I would have said no to two years. We did a year. Then they asked me to do another year, but then I'd seen that Fun Home was coming in. I I didn't even have an audition. And I said to the agent, I really want to be part of this show because I thought it was the show. It's great. Fantastic. I thought the the subject matter was extraordinary and I wanted to be part of it. And I wanted to work with Sam Gold, the director, and Janine and Lisa. So EastEnders had offered me another year and I said, I can do to blah blah which was like eight eight months another eight months and it what we worked out with the, with the bbc was that i was going to leave on this date i'd have two weeks off to have holiday and then i'd start fun home which i hadn't auditioned for <laughs> so you'd you would you, in your head you'd cemented that is exactly what i'm doing next i totally had <laughs> and when i went into the audition i said just so you know um i i i've left a very lucrative TV job in order to be free for this. So I went, what did they say? Did they, they respond? Went, okay, look, nodded at me. <laughs> but I, I remember my last my last interview. I sat. I, I did my audition. I was in there for ages. And I just sat. I sat in prep over the road, and I was watching who was going in, going, "How long she been?" Because I had so much at stake, but I got the job. I honestly, I was thrilled I was thrilled and I thought well there we are thank you powers that be that and I yeah I was very glad to have done that and it was lovely to to leave EastEnders on my terms um and I did have a wonderful time doing it it has to be said I really did uh, and especially being reunited with I don't know whether you watch the show but there's a character called Sharon Sharon yeah yeah and that Patricia Dean Tish and I were at were in school together in the same so we had a great time together and I, I love and adore her so it was lovely really lovely to do it for those reasons but um, um, Bridges again I was in doing EastEnders and Babani rang me who's the um, runs the Menier uh, Babani never rings you unless he wants something Right. I was like, oh, what's he doing? And he said, You're always waiting for that phone call when he's, I'll ring you, yeah. but it doesn't come. He's ringing you back and he doesn't say why. And you're like, oh my God, this could be life changing or not. Sometimes it's not. But um, he, so he rang out. I said, ring me back, Jen. So I rang him back and he said, um, wait, I, I love this show called Bridges of Madison County. Jason's written it. I said, we have heard of it. And he said, but there's no one can play Francesco but you. So I was sat in this very hot little dressing room with all my false eyelashes on as, as Michelle Fowler. And I went, 
oh, okay. I said, well, can you send me a script? Yes, I'll send you the script. And, and the music, he said, it's, it's on Spotify. So I thought, brilliant. And I immediately, because I was in my dressing room waiting to do another scene, I immediately Googled it and I saw pictures of um, Kelly O'Hara looking absolutely beautiful in little 1960s sort of housewifey dresses with no shoes on and bare legs and beautiful black hair. I think, why should you do And then, then in a little negligee, and I think, well, that's a bit risque. <clears throat> and then I listened to the albums, like the first thing, here's a border that leaves from now. Yeah. I thought, she, would she be Ita- Italian? She's Italian. <laughs> Italian soprano, Ooh, all that. I said, no, mm. can't do it. I honestly had like hot flushes, panic attacks, and I rang David and went, I, it's beautiful. I said, but I can't be that. I can't. Oh, well, I'm a character actress. I'm not someone, sexy, lady, Italian. Italian? Oh, (laughs) soprano. He went, you can do it. You could do it. It's not about that. It's about her heart. And I went, no. I said, I love you, but I can't. So I said no to it. By then, I started started to listen to the album. And I loved the music. And I'd be in the car driving to work, driving to fun home going, God, this music is so beautiful and expressive. And it got me, it just got me. So cut to about a year, year later, I just, I'd finished fun home and I was in New York doing a, a workshop, a month's workshop. It was like a brilliant busman's holiday. I was there and Babani rang me up and he said, I'm in New York having meetings. Let's go have dinner. And we went to see Star is Born in, oh, yeah. in one of those cinemas where you're virtually lying down. And it came to the end of the film and both of us were uh, sobbing. And I just looked at him and I went, I want to do bridges. I want to do bridges. I've got to get over myself and think that I can be, I can play an attractive woman and I can play a love interest at my age and I can be feminine. And all the things that I just don't think I am. And um, so we did it, yeah. You say that, you know, um, you don't feel you're feminine. I guess working from such a young age, you, you kind of you kind of see your casting bracket evolve over, a, a you know, you've been the young girl, the teenager, you know, the, the mum, and I suppose. And I've always sort of thought of you as a character actor, but... Um, does it get, do you think it gets more difficult as you get older or do you think the opportunities open up more now? Well, it's tricky, isn't it? Because I guess it must be different for everyone. I, I, I feel like it's it's got better. You know, I felt like I was in a lovely position then coronavirus came along. But I guess it's just another bloody hurdle for us all to get over. And, and how often do you... No, I had a year and a half's work planned ahead, different projects, and I was really excited. And and following year, I was meant to be doing um, a kind of a project that was involving two shows that I've always wanted to do, and doing both of them in kind of repertoire. But I guess that's going to be if if that goes ahead, that won't happen now for four or five years because I think the 
the landscape's going to be very different for a while. But, you know, they, hopefully they'll come around again, but they really might not. It's horrible. No, as a woman, I don't know. I think I've, I, as the older I've got, the more comfortable I've become with myself, the more I realise you can't please everyone. <laughs> Some people just aren't going to like what you do and other people are going to like what you do. And And I've come to terms with that a lot more. Also, I think as a, as a woman, things are getting better, but I think for a long time when I was younger, there was, I, I've never thought of myself as pretty or attractive. I've always thought of myself as someone who's kind of waiting to turn into a character actor. Right. Um, and I mm. think the older you get, the, the pressure is off to be something. And the landscape's changing a bit. But, you know, I remember young cast, when I was younger, you know, the agent would say, please wear a tight-fitting dress like this because the director likes women to look this way, wear heels. You know, there is a lot of that. And there, there isn't, you know, I, I, I will go into an audition in sneakers and jeans because I think this is who I am. Uh, you know, if you can't see past that, then you're stupid. Mm, mm, you can mm. all, we all look better in a in a tuxedo, don't we? we all, that's <laughs> yeah, designer's job don't. to make us look nice. Yeah, you know we can. It's hard. It's hard. But I, I I think I keep looking at people who I admire and people who I've respected all my life, and they've kind of all of them have been themselves, and I and I think. It, it's the strongest thing we have. It's the only thing we have is who we are and just representing who the complexities of us as a human being is enough. Otherwise, you're going into auditions or you're, you're shaving parts of your personality off all the time. Yeah, it's exhausting, it I think, exhausting. to do that. It's exhausting, it is. It is, and you're never going to please everybody. And sometimes you just get a job because you fit the costumes of the person that wore them before. Sometimes you get a job because you remind someone of their auntie or that you made them laugh because you tripped up on the way out. You can get jobs on the silliest thing. I think most of the time, if you get an audition, that's, that's them saying, you're good enough to play the role because we're seeing you. And it's just about, have they got too many people with blonde hair? Have... Is, is your leading lady taller than you? Is, you know, it's, it goes down to things that we have no control over. We have no control over. What musical theatre role would you like to do oh, you wrote yeah. that you haven't done? <clears throat> oh, gosh, there are too many. And more to be written, I guess. I, there's, loads of, I mean, there's loads of things that I wish I had been seen for that have gone that will, I'll never play but I guess you know the I'd, I'd love to give Mrs. Lovett a go I'd love to play um I'd really like to do um it's not a musical theatre though I, I did Winter's Tale at the R RSC years ago and there's some really beautiful women's parts in that and I love love that play I'd love to do that I'd, I'd like to do Grey Gardens again. I think there's room for that to come back. Um, I'd like to play the witch. I'd like to play um, Fosca in Passion. 
I always wanted to play Sally in Follies because I played young Sally. And I got the opportunity, but I didn't, I wasn't released from a contract to do it. You know, we, so now I'm going in the next So cycle, many. I'd like to play Carlotta. So there we go. I'll put that one on. <laughs> <laughs> time. But, but, mm. Again, that's the lovely thing about Sondheim. He writes women brilliantly. And mm. there are so many. There's a vast array of different types in his shows. So I think mm. as I'm getting older, I'm going, Joanne. In yeah. You know, all these things in 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. We need to obviously talk about the rise of digital theatre now, which is why we're doing the podcast, which is um, there is a, on, a Godspell online in concert, which is um, an online platform which is raising money for several charities, which you're a part of. And I just want to, you know, with the rise of Zoom and digital theatre, uh, what is the rehearsal process like? Have you had many rehearsals via Zoom? Well, you know, we've, we've done quite a lot with the Godspell thing. Um, Stratton, Michael Stratton is our director and he's really, he's got a, a very clear vision for what he wants to do with the show. Because I don't really know, I know the music of Girls with Bell, but I don't know the story of it. So when he explained it to me, I was like, oh, that's brilliant. He's using images and um, animation. So it's not just all of us there's other things to support a story and and to give uh, give the, the the viewer a journey to go on because of course we're all so separate. I mean, it's hard because acting is about reacting, isn't it? So the, the thing is with all this digital stuff, um, where you're recording yourself, you are recording yourself in isolation. You're not you're not responding to anything, so you're just kind of doing your thing at home, but on this one, um, he's he's got a very specific idea. We had a rehearsal yesterday, but that was really talking about how he wants us to film ourselves. What's going to happen to when he, when when we film ourselves? How he's going to use it? What's the story? What to be thinking about when we're singing the song? Um, and so that that's useful, really useful. But it, it's it's a beautiful show and. I feel honoured to be singing on the Willows there because it's my favourite song, such a beautiful song, and to do it with Sally Ann Triplett, who's one of my oldest and best buddies, and Johnny Barr, who is the love of my life, apart from my husband and my child, um, godfather to my little girl, and um, one of the most beautiful people you'll ever meet in your life. So it's nice that the three of us will be there. And I guess, you know, uh, it'll be something that will be there forever, I think, will it? I don't know. Do you think digital theatre, uh, you know, and the right, uh, certainly we've seen a rise of productions online and, and streaming to the home. Do you feel digital theatre, uh, and it's a controversial thought, that does it support theatre or do you think it'll ultimately take away from live theatre? Well, it's tricky. It's tricky because, you know, th- there is a company digital theatre that's been going a long time and they, they, they've come in and recorded Into the Woods that I did the Regent's Park and that's actually that's how I saw Into the Woods because I wasn't able to get uh, to Regent's Park so we, they recorded that they recorded Merrily We Roll Along which has been taken off a, I think some big universal or something they own the rights of the play oh, wow. 
maybe there's a movie coming out. Mate, yeah. But that wasn't then. It wasn't then, was right. it? It was before then. But anyway, um, and, and they both work, they both worked very well. But it's interesting, you know, the NT Live thing, they record, what, 12 productions a year? And generally, it's ones with very famous people in them. Not necessarily the best theatre that's out there. They don't, they, it usually comes as part of your contract. They, they go, oh, we've got um, Ray Fiennes doing Cleopatra, Antony and Cleopatra. They, they go in and go, yes, we'll, we'll record that one because people will want to see it. But I don't know. Fun Hope didn't get, didn't get recorded, and that's a Pulitzer Prize winning thing. Uh, and they hardly ever do musicals because they're too expensive because they have to pay the musicians. But, you know, I remember when the, the pandemic started, people going, just release all the archive stuff. And you go, the, for most shows, the archive, if they do one at all, and these are big shows, is one camera at the back of the circle just so the choreographer can see the shape of, of the choreography they're, they're not close-ups you know that multi-camera costs probably 80 90 pounds to come in they record they spend three or four days watching it pre-recording it to see how they're going to do the shots then they're in the, it's, ex, it's expensive to to do an nt live is massively expensive so they only do ones that they think people will go to the cinema for, which kind of defeats the object. Then we're getting into um, popularist stuff and art, the arts isn't about that. Mm. And also I think I've watched a few plays that I've in lockdown that I've seen live and I had a totally different experience because what happens is you have a, you rehearse the play, you get a director, you direct it, you do some notes, you change things. But then also you have another director now that is choosing which shots you should be looking at. And in actual to fact, do with the show, yeah. Could be just because it looks visually more impressive or whatever. And I, and I was thinking, actually, I, I'm not enjoying this as much as I did. And I thought, because I'm seeing it, I'm being told what I should be focusing on. And sometimes in shows, it's what's not being seen, something at the back of, the, you know, something that's a, which is funny or whatever. So I don't know, I, I find it a bit, um, and a lot of things are being offered for free. And I guess we have to bridge the gap between reopening theatres. And I guess, you know, with Regent's Park putting a massive push and they've said that they're going to be redoing um Jesus Christ Superstar, I mean, is a, is a huge step forward and, and will no doubt lose a lot of money. But I think it's the stance that theatres need to make right now. Yeah, well, it's great that they're, and, they're, um, you know, they're dipping their toe in the, in the very choppy waters to, and, and we need people to throw themselves in to see how, how we manage in, in that. And, and I guess it's, it's the best venue we've got in London for them to be able to do that. And then bravo for them for doing it. I mean, and it gives us all hope, doesn't it? I mean, it's interesting. A friend of, a friend of mine who's a director called Robert Icke, who is one of the best directors in the world, he, he did a version of Hamlet that he did at the, at, um, the Almeida. 
with um, Andrew Scott and Juliet Stevenson, to name but a few. And mm. I remember him telling me that when they came in to do the NT live, he was very much, he kind of, the director of, of the cameras let Robert pick his shots. And he said, this only works on a three shot or you need the whole stage for this. And you can have a close up on that. He was very instrumental, but I don't think all directors get that luxury. And honestly, I've not, I've not watched any of the live things. I wish I'd watched Monster Calls. I was annoyed that I missed that. But I think I, for me, I not, I've not watched myself in, in shows of mine that have, that have been um, filmed because There's nothing like sitting in a theatre with a group of people. You're all participating. You've made a contract with the people on stage and the set and everything. You you take it in in a completely different way. And I, it's I think it's great that things are archived. I think that's important. I think it's lovely that it is. Um, but it's not it's not the theatre. It's not. It's not what we do. It's, it's what the theatre is, is, is a much bigger thing than that, which is why I think a lot of the time movie versions of musicals just don't work because it's not about, it's about being in a theatre, being petrified of, 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 of because it, you're in a dark room with these actors and they're telling this story and it's very claustrophobic. You don't get that if you're sat in your front room. No. You pause it and go mm-hmm. up for a cup of tea. It's a very diff- different mm-hmm. different thing. But each to their own. The sad thing is that I think people don't realise that when these things get made, if, if, you, if you do a digital, digital theatre thing or a NT live, you get paid for the performance that they film. And basically that's it. A lot of... Virtually everyone else, I, I, mean, I don't know how it is because I've not been part of one, but I can't imagine that many of the have, get paid anything for, for when they get shown. I think it, all they're doing, which is good, is just keeping theatre in people's minds, reminding people what we do and hoping that it will make them go, oh, I really enjoyed watching One Man, Two Governors. I can't wait to get back into the theatre to see and then finally, what bit of advice that you were given uh, at the beginning or through your career that has sustained you going forward? Well, that's a tricky one. I think a couple of things. Um, I remember someone saying to my partner, but I thought that's such a good bit of advice. He said, make sure you enjoy the journey and it's just not all about the destination. Because when, when you get to the destination, you realise it was all about the journey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the, the destination's never as good as you think it's going to be. Uh, so enjoy the, the way you get to where you think you want to be. Um, that, that thing of you can't always play the lead, I think that's a really – there's no shame in going backwards – Sometimes, sometimes going backwards opens doors. I've done it a few times in my career 
where I've gone, oh, I'm at this point and really I should be going there or maintaining this. But it's hard to do that. And sometimes you go, I just want to do that job because I love it, even if it means supposedly I'm going back a few steps. Sometimes that's brilliant. And sometimes it opens doors for other things or gives you the confidence. I did, um, I did a show called, or what's called Soho Cinders. And I really went a good few steps back in terms of my career to do that. But doing that gave me the comp because I had such a lovely time and the company was so gorgeous. And it's actually what I needed to be part of that group of people for that period of time. But it gave me the strength and the conviction to ring up Maria Friedman when I heard she was doing Merry, Merrily We Roll Along and say, can I audition for you? I would not have done that if I hadn't been in Soho Cinders because prior to Soho Cinders, I was just sitting in my front room thinking no one was ever going to employ me again. And I would never have had the, the strength to ring her up and go, would you see me for this part? Because I would have been too embarrassed. And it was only because I was doing that job and I thought, oh, Jenna, just do it. It doesn't matter. All she can say is say no. And that's, I guess, another thing. You know, all all that people can say is say no. That's the worst that can happen is they'll say no. If you go, I'd love to be auditioned for that. If you wanted to go for something, really ask your agent or ring the people or write them a letter. You never know. It might get you in the door. You know, obviously be polite with it all, but sitting around waiting for it to happen, sometimes that that just isn't enough. Sometimes you have to, you have to kind of go, I know this is ridiculous and please say no if you think it is ridiculous, but I think I can play this part and I'd love to audition for you. All they can say is, I'll bless you, no. (laughs) And then you go, okay, well, at least I asked. But they might go, oh, all right, then come in. And you might get, you might, prove something or you might not get that role but you you'll have done a good job in that audition and they think of you for something else you know it's, it's playing the long game I think we forget it's a long it's a brilliant career but it potentially can go on till you're a hundred you have to play the long game it you, you don't it, it it doesn't all come at once it, no some people, we would do all it. of us no, I was doing a podcast with Brian Cox and he said very early on, somebody said to me, Brian, you are not going to be on the short haul flight. And he said, don't get seduced by people who are on the short haul flight because he said it's not going to be your, you, you're going to be on the 12 hour, 24 hour flight. That's and right. At the time he thought, why? He said, I, I want to be that. And, and in the end, he said, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a more interesting journey for me. And um, and I think, like you said, you do forget the um, enjoy the journey because the destination sometimes when you get uh, Anthony Hopkins family said you climb the tree and you get to the top of the tree and you realize actually when you get up there, there's nothing there, yeah. uh, you know, or there's another tree. You're at the bottom of another tree <laughs> and you just you, you said it's never ending, you know, it's so you said true. You just, it's true. And I, th- I, I, I've always played the long in my head. I've always played the long game. I've always thought. I'll do that play at the gate um, for a travel card 
because I really want to work with that director. I've heard really good things about that director. And you end up doing the job. And I was not earning any money. I had £25 a week to pay for my travel car, but I worked with some really smart, brilliant actors and worked with a director that I've worked with since because I knew he was a good director. I'd seen some of his work and I thought, he's going places. I want to be part of his... I want to be part of his ensemble of actors that he looks to, and it 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 works. Also, you know, you got to be nice to your assistant directors. One thing as this life has taught me in the in the theatre that I've had is that you you'll come across them. These assistant directors who you know are going to be running the world. Mm-hmm. Work with them, get on with them. Do if they say, oh, I'm doing this little play reading at the pub around the corner, do it. I know people do now. They didn't when I started out. People wouldn't do and wouldn't do anything like that. Or they would I remember when I was in Les Mis and I was doing I've been I was offered, oh, what was it? Um oh my brain, Michael John Lacuse's show called um oh It'll come to me. Really good show, 12 actors. The Blue Room is based on it. Oh, it will come to me. Um, oh, I can't believe that. I've forgotten. I can see the, I can see the poster. Any, Wild Party. No, not Wild Party. All oh. that. Based um. on La Ronde. Oh. Anyway, 12 actors. Everyone had a really good role in the show. And I was going to, I was leaving Les Mis to do that. And there were a few younger actors in the show in Les Mis when I was there. And I said, go up for this because he's a really good director. You'll be working with the, Michael Hughes is going to be working with us on it. He's a great writer. 150 quid. But if you put, you know, 50 quid a week away from your week now, you'll be able to support yourself through it. You'll get reviewed by all the national papers. Honestly, these nobody would audition for it. No, no, I'm gonna. I might. No, and I hate to say it, but where are they? <laughs> they're, they're not in the business anymore. And you go. You've got to. You've got to think outside the box. You've got to spread your spread your roots far and wide. The more people you work with, the more people you a makes you a better actor because you're working with different types of people and you're when you get a cushy job you go god this is a nice cushy job i've got a dresser picking up my clothes folding my pants and putting them in front of me every day this is bliss more often than not you're doing that yourself and it's good it's good to to get your get in there and get dirty and and have to clean your own dressing room because then you would really appreciate it when the, when you've got some beautiful cleaner coming in cleaning your dressing room. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's yeah. Common yeah, yeah. sense, but I think a lot of people think the business is about turning up, being an overnight success, and it's not. It's not. You have great times. You have shitty times. Sometimes when you're earning well. Other times where you you're not at all. But it, but if you play the long game, think think of it as you've got sixty years in the business if you do it right. Sixty years, you know. And this t- 
time, I mean, when I'd never, ne- no, whoever saw this coming, that it, you couldn't be in a room rehearsing with people. You couldn't do a scene with someone. You can never sing publicly. I mean, you, it's the stuff of nightmares, but we will get past it. And um, no one could have foreseen, foreseen what, what we're dealing with now. No, mm. but don't let it put you off because it's 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 a hard career, but the rewards are so extraordinary. If there's anyone out there listening, thinking they might do it, no, you just have to be realistic. Thanks to my guest Jenna Russell, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, tickets for the Godspell concert online are available now via HopeMillTheatre.co.uk. 